why don't you open up your Bibles uh, to Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 42 through 47. It's one of my favorite passages, actually, in the, in the scriptures, uh, because it's a description of the first church. Literally, it's what happened immediately after Pentecost. And you remember, we considered last week at the, at the close of Peter's great sermon, here we have a group of 120 followers of Jesus who have waited for the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's recorded that the Spirit came upon them on the day of Pentecost, uh, this supernatural event where God's presence was made manifest in a really unique way, uh, where Jesus, the, the promise that Jesus himself gave to the disciples in the upper room the night of his betrayal when he said, it's good that I go to my Father uh, because when I go to the Father, I will send to you another helper, the Spirit of truth, and he will guide you into all truth and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Uh, and he also said that this Spirit, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, of judgment, and of righteousness. And, and here we see uh, that event take place. The Spirit fills the followers of Jesus. So now Jesus says, greater works than these will you do. Uh, and why? Because now, instead of being present only in one body, he says, I will come and send my spirit, and literally all followers will become the temples of God, where God's presence actually dwells within us. And this powerful manifestation of God's spirit upon these individuals led to this incredible sermon, this address from Peter, where he expressed that what is happening uh, is the fulfillment of scripture, and it's all wrapped up in this person, Jesus, who you've heard about uh, who died upon the cross, and he even says, whom you crucified, this same Jesus has risen from the dead. We are witnesses to his resurrection. He, he was with us. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. What you're experiencing today is the, very, is the evidence of his resurrection because you are, you are seeing his spirit working um, through us and drawing you to his message. And what happens at the end of the message, it says that, that they came to Peter and said, what must their heart, they were cut to the heart, and they said, what must we do to be saved? And he said, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the promise of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. And it says 3,000 individuals were added that day. That's a good, that's a good preaching day. That's a good sermon. Uh, 3,000 people. But here's what's powerful is immediately on the, on the tail end of that, what happens uh, is the church is formed. Uh, that these people didn't mess around, that they came into contact with the living Christ. The salvation was so radical, so transformative, that it actually changed the entire trajectory of their existence. And I always like to remind us, because this gives us insight into what the church is supposed to be. Why does church matter is a question that we have to continually ask ourselves. And the church is a community which belongs to, to and are gathered around Jesus Christ through the Spirit who calls us and equips us to participate in Christ's word and work. And I think that we have to reckon with the fact that Jesus has chosen to manifest himself to his world through his church, and that the idea of the isolated Christian, I can be a follower of Jesus, but I don't need church, is nowhere to be found in scriptures, that when God said it's not good that man be alone, he meant more than just marriage. He's talking about existence, that the essence of salvation is a restoration of relationship in three directions, toward God, toward others, and then finally a right relationship with ourselves. Unfortunately, our tendency is to reverse that order, which means that we often make church um, uh, something that's negotiable. And, and listen, 
I'm not here to, to make you guys feel bad if you're the attendee that makes it once a month because Darcy and I joke that I'm, I'm like, I think I need to start a church because if I don't start one, I don't think I'll go. So I'm, just, I'm stuck. I have to be here. So I, you know, I, but I understand it's a spiritual battle to get to church. Uh, it's, there is so much uh, drawing our attention, uh, absorbing our thoughts, pulling our devotions, uh, that it is, a, it is a fight often to get here. For many of you who are parents, you can think about it. Like, why do kids always act the worst on the day that you're going to go to church? Like, it's just this, I believe that there's a spiritual component uh, that God does not want, or the enemy does not want God's people gathering together because there's power when we do. And so what I want us to see today is what does a healthy community look like? And the best place to look is to look at the first church. You always begin with the origin. And sadly, the church was really, really healthy for about 30 years. <laughs> uh, and, and then the, the history of the church is a, is, a, is a splotchy one at best because it's still ran by sinful fallen people. And so uh, I think that this gives us a picture of what, what should be our desire, our goal. Uh, once again, there are irrepeatable realities in this, in this text, but there are, there are patterns that we should long for, we should push for, we should strive for, and actually should even ask ourselves, can we truly be a church if we do not have these things as qualifiers of our existence? Um, so verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So the first thing that you see is that these people were devoted. Devotion was a true mark of this first church. And it was de devotion, that word means dedication and loyalty. And they were dedicated and loyal to these four realities. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, that was togetherness, to the breaking of bread, I would argue that that's speaking of more than just sharing a meal, uh, which would have been common practice, but specifically gathering around the Lord's Supper, the meal of remembrance, which would have probably been a part of a meal itself, uh, and then prayers. So these realities of what the church was devoted to, they were, first of all, devoted to learning about King Jesus. Notice it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. Now, the New Testament didn't exist yet. Uh, the New Testament itself is a collection of letters written by those first witnesses. Uh, and those witnesses were sharing the teachings, the realities of what they learned from Jesus. They had the Old Testament, and the Old Testament they were now interpreting in the light of the incarnation, in the light of who Jesus was, what he, what he did, how he died, how he rose from the dead, and how he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And now they're looking at the Old Testament, seeing it as the fulfillment that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that that was pointing to. Uh, and so these apostles basically taught these 3,000 new believers about who Jesus is, what Jesus, what Jesus calls them to. What does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to receive this newness of life? They wanted to understand the new reality in which they stood. And I think that this devotion to to the apostles' teaching should convict us deeply because I think it's challenging for us when we recognize that our lives are often devoted to a lot of things that have nothing to do with Christ, and often our devotion to Christ is last uh, in priority. Let me just ask the basic question. How many of you read your, the scriptures every day? Well, I, I didn't ask for hands, but... I'm hoping there's a lot more of you because you, did, you thought it was a rhetorical question, but thank you for those of you who are bold enough to say, yes, I do. Uh, 
If I was to actually ask the question, how many of you don't read the scriptures every day, please do not raise your hand, because uh, it's super sad when you're a pastor. Uh, but I, I, here's, the, here's the thing, is that our time is so bombarded with a million things. There's a million voices vying for our attention and for our devotion. Have we attuned our lives? Have we gained what I call a sacramental cast, where we are attuning ourselves to the very presence of the living Christ. The reality is, is that Jesus himself is called the, the word of God. He is the word in action, the logos. But the written word is given to us, inspired by the spirit, is what we believe as Orthodox Christians, is that God's word is inspired by God, written through, uh, written through human instruments and in in that word, God has given us a revelation about himself. He's given us a revelation about our need for him and his intention for what life should look like in communion with him. And we need to understand the scriptures if we're going to understand the heart of our God. Now, here's the thing. Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will bring to remembrance all that I have said. But as I have stated a million times before, the Spirit cannot bring to remembrance something that you have not first placed in your head. The Spirit may be an incredible teacher, but it doesn't help if you're a horrible student. And what I mean by that is that you're not going to get an A if you don't do your homework. In other words, you've got to actually spend time in the Word. If the Spirit's going to help you understand who the person of Jesus is, you actually have to take in the information for the Spirit to be able to illuminate. He can't illuminate something that isn't there. So what is your devotion to the Scriptures? Well, the first time I read through the Bible, I understood maybe 1% of it. But I was devoted to it because Jesus had so grabbed a hold of my heart that I wasn't going to be content until I understood him more. I've been a believer now for in between 17 and 18 years. And in, those, and in all of those years, uh, and I even say that there's been seasons where I've just allowed it to become lax, but I have always tried to read the Bible through at least once a year. In the, last, in the last year, I've been doing a, a newer thing where I'll take one book and read it every single day for 30 days, just saturating my mind and my heart with the Word of God because it is the Word of God that actually shapes our existence. And I don't know about you, but when I don't read my Bible, when I let a couple days go by because of busyness, uh, I can feel it in the depths of my soul, the impact, because we have to fight for the peace, the rest that Jesus wants to give us. We have to actually, he gives us our part. Our part is to take it in. His part is to illuminate it and to actually bring understanding to it. But he can't bring understanding to something that we haven't taken in. And so the question is, is are you devoted to the scriptures? The whole reason we gather on a weekly basis is that we gather around the person of Christ as he has revealed himself to us through the scriptures. Christians today are struggling to be able to even define for themselves what the gospel even is. The most basic doctrines, the basic, the basic makeup of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is often oblivious. We're, we're so drawn into the culture wars around the ethics of Jesus are constantly being poked at and attacked by the culture in which we live. This is why we need to be devoted to the word of God so that we can actually define for ourselves and determine what is truth and what is falsehood. And this is, I think, plays deeply into even what Charles Hedges, the New York Times journalist, wrote in his book, Empire of Illusion, where he said that as, a, as an American culture, we are increasingly growing in our illiteracy and as we become more and more illiterate, we become more driven by spectacle. And if 
there has ever been a time in American history where every component of our society, including our politics, is a spectacle. It's today. And so we have to ask the question of how do we determine what is true uh, and what is false? We devote ourselves to the word that the living Christ might instruct us on how to live for him according to his ways. So we're learning about Jesus. This is the second point I would make about the devotion to the word. It's specifically a devotion to King Jesus. I think that there's a lot of trends right now within the church to be very prescriptive in its preaching, uh, giving you, you know, five ways to a better marriage, six ways to, uh, to uh, make work matter, seven, seven ways to understand and identify who you really are and who you're meant to be, your best life now. And, and here's the thing. If we aren't, as a church, preaching Jesus every service, bringing attention to the gospel of Christ, we aren't functioning as the church is called to function. And I think that this needs to be an understood reality for Door of Hope. We will consistently, the, the gospel never gets old and you never move past it. We need to consistently circle around the person of Jesus and his complete work for us that we might understand our standing as a new creation. This is why these, these early believers were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And then they were devoted to fellowship. I love this word. They, they were devoted to togetherness. They were literally together around the person of Christ. They had a new commonality. They came from all different classes. You had, you had free and slave. You had, you had Jew and Greek, uh, especially as the church expanded into all of the known world. There was a, a commonality, a koinonia, a fellowship that occurred where, the, where truly Jesus was the head and the church was the body. It was a singular body functioning together around the person of Christ. And this fellowship means that they learned that the lives around them were more important than their own lives. And this is why it's impossible to actually practice Christian living in isolation, because the whole essence of, of Christianity is, is how then ought we live life together as followers of Christ. I have had a restored relationship with Jesus, which pushes me into relationship with others. Jesus himself said that evangelism begins in how the community loves one another. It says, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. This is a time in which churches become uh, truly optional for many people. And I think we need to understand that the gospel is most powerfully proclaimed when we are committed to gathering together around the person of Christ, in unison around the same teaching, around the same God whom we worship, and people will sense the power of the gospel when what makes the gospel attractive is when God's people are together with one spirit, desiring to make Jesus known and glorified. I think that this is super important because uh, one of the things that people ask me, how can I get more engaged or, or involved in the church? I'm like, just start by showing up because we need to be committed. We need to make this a priority. It used to be that people built their lives around the church community. Now church is, is, is an additional thing that's added to our already busy and stressed out lives. It shouldn't be that way. It should be a priority because we need one another to stay close to Christ. Uh, not only did they devote themselves to learning, uh, to get togetherness, but they also devoted themselves to celebrating the work of Christ. This is the reason that we take communion every week. Jesus said on the night of his betrayal, he took a piece of bread and, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. I want you to eat this in remembrance of me. And he says, likewise, he took the cup 
And he said, this cup represents my blood spilled for the forgiveness of the sins of many. Drink this in remembrance of me. And we as a covenantal people, we're in a new covenant with, with Christ. Every week when we come to the table, this isn't to just do something out of rote memory. It's not something, it's not something to, to bring. We don't do it on a weekly basis so that it loses its value. It's actually to keep front and center the reality that our standing before God is not based upon what we have done for God, but what God has done for us in Christ. Communion represents God's yes and amen over our lives through Jesus. It's a celebration of our standing in Christ. So they were devoted to learning about King Jesus. They were devoted to being together around Jesus. They were devoted to celebrating the work of Jesus through communion, and they were devoted to prayer. Um, and I think praying is something that is, that is just a burning passion for me right now in, in the church, and I'm just, I was so excited last week to see so many people come forward to receive prayer um, after the service, because there has been no revival in human history that was not marked by exceeding devotion to prayer. You remember the disciples before Pentecost, they were told to go and wait until the, until the coming of the Spirit came upon them. And, they, and they, they waited and they prayed together fervently for 10 days. I used to do all night prayer for Door of Hope. And I remember I used to like, I would say it would be from 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. And many of you have came to that. And then about like 4 a.m., I'm like, do you think, I don't want to be legalistic. Do you think the Lord would mind if I... We, I feel like we've said everything we need to say at four. And then I would get all convicted. Then, because I am, I do have this weird little guilty conscience uh, temperament. I was like, and, and super, a little bit superstitious. I was like, if we knock it off now, what if the spirit was going to come at 4.35 and we just ended early? And I'd get stressed out. I'm like, we better just stick it out. And then I would just fall, fall asleep for the last hour. Um, I even remember leading worship during it and like falling forward, hitting my head on the microphone. So I, uh, but, I but the point is, is that, is, is that 15 minutes of prayer is a stretch for most of us. And the reality is that the early church, they recognized that prayer was a privilege, not just a responsibility. That prayer was the ability to directly come to the God of the universe and commune with him. That God speaks to us through his word and instructs us by his spirit. But prayer is the opportunity that we have as the spirit moves within us to actually commune with the living God, that we have the, we have the ability to come with boldness to the throne room of grace. And I believe that the reason that we don't see God move in power is because we have not brought forth empowered prayer. That God says through Jesus, you have not because you ask not. And even when, and I think that this is important when he says, he says, listen, he says, knock, and the door is going to be open. You being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father in heaven give to those who ask him? And yet we don't ask, and we don't seek, because it's a work that, that is hard for us, because there's a, spiritual real, there's a spiritual battle in it. But I think that prayer is something that we need to actually learn how to grow in, and I think the best way to do it is together, is that we pray together we celebrate the work of Jesus together, we gather together around the person of Jesus, and we learn about Jesus together. And if these things are things that we choose as door, at Door of Hope to be devoted to, I promise the power of God will be unleashed through our church. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, and so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. 
We worship a God of yes. He wants to commune with us. He wants to speak to us. He wants to fulfill his promises in our midst. The question is, is will we believe him for it? Because look what happened when they devoted themselves to these things. Look at verse 43. A second mark of a healthy church is not just devotion, but it's also reverence. Uh, it says, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And I love this because here you see this word awe came upon every soul. Things were beginning to happen, even supernatural realities. It says many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. But I want you to note that the devotion to the word, to fellowship, uh, to the breaking of bread and to prayer actually led the church to, to live with a certain level of spiritual expectancy. And I believe that that expectancy, uh, that was an expectant faith. They trusted Christ to be the Christ that he says he is. And I think that one of the things that hurts the church today is actually almost our celebration of doubt. Uh, and I think that, that, that doubt uh, has its place and all of us will struggle with it at some point. In fact, Karl Barth said uh, that we, not, we should not give too much thought to our unbelief because all we need is a little faith to move the mountain. And, and, I, and I think that it is true that probably the most honest prayer is, I believe, help my unbelief. But I think that we become almost romantic, we romanticize our, uh, our doubt. Like, I believe, but you know, it, I don't really experience much. I don't, it's, it's like this almost lack of expectation. But we need to be a church that lives with expectation because the expectation is actually what produces the reverence, because when God shows up, when his power is made manifest, worship is the outflow of it. And reverence, I think, is an emotion variously combining dread, veneration, and wonder that is inspired, inspired by authority or by the sacred or sublime. And I love this because awe came upon every soul. They were experiencing tangibly the presence of Christ by his spirit in their lives. I believe that we are to experience it tangibly. I'm not talking about the experience of having, having a hand on your head that there isn't a hand there. I've never had that happen before, and I probably won't happen again. But it's that belief and that recognition, the sense that God is really with me, that God is really for me, that God really loves me and has proven that love to me through Jesus. A church that lives with an awareness, that sacramental cast, the ability to experience and see Christ in everything, I think is what we need today. What I think is beautiful, and I don't want to undermine the word awe, another word for that is fear, actually. And I think that when God's presence shows up powerfully, there should be a, a, a level of reverence and awe that, and a healthy dose of fear. But the fear of the Lord, you remember we're told, is the beginning of all wisdom, and the fear of the Lord is the fear that casts away other fears. Because think about the culture in which we live. We live in a culture that is consumed with fear. I, I, was, I actually just started making a little list. We're afraid of crime, drugs. We're being taught to be afraid of minorities, killer kids, dangerous foods, germs, mold, plane crashes, road rage, the internet, global warming, tsunamis, hurricanes, sharks. I just wanted to put that one in there for myself. <laughs> China, Russia, North Korea, the Middle East, bullies, ISIS, aging, aliens, zombies, being without our phone, which is called nomophobia, not to mention the psychological fears, such as the fear of being unattractive, the fear of being unintelligent, the fear of going crazy, the fear of the future, even the fear of crowds. And now we have the fear of this, this, the super volcano under Yellowstone <laughs> that just got thrown in for good measure. That was like, I, was, I just read an article, it will ruin the whole world. 
Um, but I, I, I think, all joking aside, there are 3,636 results for books on fear and anxiety on Amazon. And I think that what this tells us is that we live in a culture of fear because we fear the wrong thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of wisdom. I like what it says in Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. When I fell in love with Christ, there was a holy fear that came over me because I realized that I was dealing not with my homeboy. As, remember one of those t-shirts that were being sold by, uh, at Urban Outfitters? Jesus is, is your homeboy. I remember playing this Christian festival in, uh, in Pennsylvania for like 30,000 kids. And there was a bunch of kids wearing that shirt. And I was super zealous and not very gracious because I'd only been a believer a couple years. And I just remember from the stage, I'm like, you, that shirt, just want you to know, Jesus is not your homeboy. That is not what you will call him when you meet him face to face. He's the judge of the universe, man. And the kid's like, jeez. <laughs> so I think that, but I do think that there is a lack of reverence. We don't take holy things seriously. And the fear of the Lord actually protects us from the fears of our culture, of our country. And what's powerful about the early church is they had a lot at stake following Jesus. The church very quickly entered into very serious persecution. And I often wonder how well would we fare under persecution of the for the gospel? Because it's coming. I, I think that there's enough happening culturally, especially around the ethics of Jesus, that persecution of the church is, is inevitable if we're to actually hold to an orthodox vision of Christianity. But I think that this is powerful. Their reverence uh, it was driven by a faithful expectancy that God was going to work, and he did. I like um, what William Barclay said in his commentary on Acts uh, around, uh, he, says, he says, when they lived devoted lives, uh, things began to happen, is how he put it. And he says, he goes, when we believe for great things from God and attempt great things for God, things will happen. But when faith dies, so does achievement. I think that the early church was marked by a reverent faith that was the outcome of their devotion to Jesus. Uh, look, look what else they were devoted to. Uh, in verses 40, 44 and 45, it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I want to point out that Acts is a book of history. It's not meant to be um, prescriptive. Not that we can't draw lessons out of it as we are right now, uh, but there have been many who have taken this passage to say that Christian, true Christianity um, pushes for uh, self-inflicted poverty. Uh, and I, I actually don't believe that that's the thrust of this. In fact, if you follow the thread of what happened uh, to the church in Jerusalem, they actually gave away so much that they had to be told not to because they were putting themselves in poverty. Uh, and I think that, that what the point of the text is, is that they all of a sudden moved from how can I protect myself and what is mine to how can I give myself away for Jesus uh, to those around me. Togetherness requires a spirit of self-sacrifice. When the gospel grabs a hold of our hearts, what it does is it gives us a new vision for the world around us. Now, what's interesting about the early church, I think that sometimes, and I just want to say, Door of Hope, uh, we, I remember the years where we were like a thousand baristas went to Door of Hope, and like nobody gave online, and we, we had 
we had the giving level of a church of about 100, even though we were 1,000 adults. So, I mean, we were living lean. And I, and I, but hey, you guys made up for what we lacked in resources, we made up for in energy and youthful zeal. So I'm grateful. But as the church has matured, and especially in this last year, uh, I feel like uh, you guys have really kept caught a vision for generosity and the importance of it. And it's been a really beautiful thing to watch. It's been, it's, it's, uh, it's a strange thing. But I just want you to know that our desire as the stewards of what God is bringing into the, into the church and, and Darcy and I give, like everyone else who calls Door of Hope their home gives, our goal is not to create a bank. We're not, we don't, we're not trying to create a massive savings, but we want to see God's work done, his kingdom work done. We want to steward the money well. My vision is that we would be bringing in so much that we give out more than we actually need to actually run the organization of Door of Hope, the church of Door of Hope. We want to see the kingdom and the gospel go forth throughout the city. All of that requires resources, and I think the early church understood this, but what made it, I think, a little more tangible, because it can be a little removed if you give online, it's like, what exactly happens with the money? Well, it goes to various things. Our, our mission, uh, uh, the different outreaches that we're partnering with uh, in town from faithful friends to skate church. Uh, to, there's a whole, whole plethora of things that we give to. There's things that the, to be in this room every week costs a tremendous amount of money uh, to facilitate the children's ministry, to do benevolence for people that are in need. But what was powerful about the early church is like, I have to tell you all the things that it goes to for you to know, really. And I think that that can create a detached reality for why giving is important. But in the early church, what they would do is they would take the offering and then they would just have anyone that was in need would come forward and take what they needed. So we're going to try that. Anyone that, I'm going to pull my wallet out. <laughs> no, don't, don't. I never have cash on me. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I think that there was something very, very powerful and very beautiful about that, that I think it made generosity really exciting because it's something that happens when you actually see it. That's why when we, we've had times where we've taken an offering just that everything that comes in today is going to go to, you know, a hurricane relief. Or when we've done that in the past, it's very tangible for people. And, and of course, the giving skyrockets because they know exactly what they're giving to. But I just want to encourage you, we are committed to good stewardship. We care deeply about the money that God brings into the church to go to things that actually honor Jesus and expand his work uh, in the city of Portland and beyond. But I love this because the real point of this text is how committed these people were to one another. I think the beauty of it, George MacDonald wrote, the love of our neighbor is the only door out of the dungeon of self. I think that is such a profound, profound quote. And I think that we need to understand that Christian thinking is incarnational. It needs to lead to Christian living. It's not enough to take in the word. It's not enough to grow in our understanding of who Jesus is, but we need to be a people that are committed to actually living out the life of Jesus as he empowers us by his spirit, allowing the spirit the freedom to utilize us as conduits for his goodness. And so we see devotion. We see awe, reverence. We see generosity. And then in closing, in verses 46 and 47, we see really a worship that leads to witness. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Who added to their number? The Lord. The Lord added to their number. But how did he add to their number? 
He added to their number by utilizing them as vehicles of witness to his actual presence. These people lived so fervently in the presence of God that it made their faith attractive to those outside of the faith. The Spirit was able to draw and the Spirit was able to empower. As the Spirit empowers us to witness, the Spirit, that same Spirit draws the lost to King Jesus. And I think that this is important for us to understand. But I love this. Day by day, we get so stressed out about, are we, we care a lot about simplicity at Door of Hope, but sometimes simplicity can be reduced to this idea that we should not ask much of the people. And I don't think that should be the essence of simplicity. I think the gospel, when people say, what will it cost me to follow Jesus? My answer is always everything. Uh, but I think that we are so fearful because our lives are so busy of, of actually adding things to schedules. And so really there are two main things that we ask of Tour of Hope. Come on Sunday and get engaged in a community group. And, but I, I want you to notice, what did they do? Their community groups were how often? Every day. Jeez, who wants friends every day? <laughs> They're so over the top. Uh, how often did they gather for their main gatherings in the temple? Every day. So it's fascinating. Martin Lloyd-Jones pointed out something in his book on revival. He said, he said, whenever revival happens, God's people cannot get enough of one another. And I think that's very true. Actually, um, having spent a lot of time reading about and, and talking with people that were a part of the Jesus movement, which I believe was the last legitimate uh, revival and it really was a it really was a, a, a revival that went across um, it was it was global uh, and it, but during that revival specifically in Southern California uh, the birth of Calvary Chapel and movements like Vineyard uh, and up north uh, there was, there were other other movements the Shiloh movement which was a which was a com Christian commune that kind of came out of the Jesus movement. But the one thing that was common with all with those movements is that like at Calvary Chapel, they, had a, they gathered seven days a week. Seven days a week, thousands of people showed up every single day to hear the word of God taught, bringing their non-believing friends. I watched a video of Lonnie Frisbee preaching at Costa Mesa, and it's like, it's, there's like probably 1,500 people in the room, and he, it was a very mediocre message. And at the end, he goes, if anyone doesn't know Jesus, I just want to invite you to come forward. And like 400 people went forward crying. I'm like, that message was, wasn't even good. How do you do that? Um, and it's like the spirit was moving in a very powerful way. But what's fascinating is that they gathered every day learning uh, from, from teachers on what it meant to be followers of Jesus. It didn't actually wear them down. It didn't actually prevent them from being witnesses. Because a lot of people say, if we get them in church too much, then they're not going to be out in the world where they need to be witnesses. We need each other to actually be the witnesses that we're called to be in the world. And I think that, I don't think that we ask that much. I think sometimes we're a little too easy on ourselves uh, because our devotions, our worship is, is, uh, is scattered, really. Notice, worship came before witness. And I, I want to just remind you guys of what worship is. Our worship is whatever it is that our hearts and our minds are completely devoted to, what captivates our attention. And I wanted to ask you, because if you're a parent here today, uh, today with littles, uh, often... Uh, our children can become an object of our worship. If you're newly married, your spouse can be, and notice I said newly, uh, can be, become an object of, of, of worship. 
Uh, if you got a killer new job, that can be an object of worship. You're excited about whatever it is that you're completely captivated by, whatever it is that you give yourself to. And then there are even like more base things that people give themselves to, but I don't want to make people feel bad because uh, really if we were to ask what our culture seems to worship the most, it seems to be our cell phones. Uh, and I think that these realities uh, are, are, are troublesome because it impacts our ability to truly be a witness uh, to the city in which God has called us to be. So I always like to say that worship begins in submission. Notice what began here. The moment they got saved, they submitted themselves to the authority of the apostles. That submission led to a true devotion. Worship begins in submission. It's a surrender of your rights to, in giving them to King Jesus. He doesn't just come to be our Savior. He comes to be our Lord. But worship begins in submission, but it's initiated by the Spirit. Uh, we can't worship God without the empowerment from God. But the moment we submit to God, it gives the Spirit the room to guide us and direct us. And so it becomes initiated by the Spirit. And then the initiation of the Spirit means that it's then defined by truth. The Spirit comes to guide us into all truth. And this is why our taking the Word into our lives is so important. As we submit to Jesus and we allow His Spirit to empower us, uh, He guides us into the truth of who Jesus is that our understanding of Him would grow and it's ultimately and finally, uh, which leads to our witness expressed in love. We try to define worship by songs sung before and after service, but worship is, is the eternal occupation of every true believer. And even beyond that, all people worship. The question isn't, what, the question isn't do I worship? The question is, what am I worshiping? And I think what you see here is a people that are so submitted to Christ, so so connected to him that the overflow of their worship led to a witness to the lost world. And God was able to use that worshiping witness to draw many to himself. And I notice that the, the marks of that expression of love, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. Joy and, and gladness of heart is 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 a very attractive and a greatly missing commodity in our culture today. People are anxious, people are scared, people are lonely, people are hurting desperately. We have what we say is the answer to the world's dilemma, the very person of Christ. But the question is, is do you reflect his temperament through yours? Do you have joy? Do you make Christianity attractive to those around you? Do you have what others want? Are we different? I believe the best way to reflect that and the best way to grow in that is to do it together. I don't think we can do it alone. I think we need one another to encourage one another, to be a source of, of generosity toward one another, to be a source of joy for one another, to be a place of forgiveness. I want Door of Hope to be a place of shalom. When people come in, they can just sense the peace of God over God's people. They may not even be able to define what it is that they're experiencing, but I want you to know if you were invited to come today by a friend and you came and you don't know Jesus, we are here as a community of faith to say that he loves you. And I hope that you feel that love in the way that we live uh, before you. God wants us to be a church that is devoted, reverent, generous, and worshiping. Amen.